0: book of Isaiah, chapter 45. We'll begin in verse 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge, who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth." For I am God, and there is no other. By myself, I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. to him shall come and be ashamed, all who were incensed against Him. In the Lord. All the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that you would bless the preaching of your word. And I ask that you would help me be faithful to it. And that as a result, your people would be strengthened, and encouraged, and others would come to know the joy of your salvation for the first time. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Chapter 45, verse 5. There is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Verse 6. Surely God is in you, and there is no other. No other God besides Him. Verse 14. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Verse 18. There is no other God. Besides me, a righteous God and a Savior, there is none besides me. I am God and there is no other. Verses 21 and 22. Ten times in this chapter alone, we read that the Lord is God and there is no other. Just let that sink in. Ten times. In one chapter. It's like the biblical equivalent to a praise chorus being repeated over and over and over again. Verse one, chorus, verse two, chorus, bridge, chorus two times, chorus four four more times. It's relentless. I am the Lord and there is no other. I am God and there is no other. What are we supposed to make of this? I think Charles Spurgeon was on the right track when he once asked his congregation, would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in God's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief. So speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of God. I agree completely with that. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to, as he says, muse for the next Minutes together upon the subject of God. For that is ultimately what or better who this text is all about. Ten times in this chapter. I am the Lord. I am God. And there is no other. And my prayer for you this morning is that as we do, as we plunge ourselves into God's deepest sea, into who he is, as he's revealed in his word, in this word, My prayer is that you would experience that great comfort for your soul. You would experience a penetrating calm come over you in your many sorrows. That you would experience a profound inner peace in the midst of your various trials. Whether that happens again for you in a fresh way today or it happens to you for the very first time. I am God And there is no other. Now, I don't assume that everyone here, simply because we're in church, embraces this idea. Religious relativism, big word, religious relativism, the idea that all religions, all faiths are equally valid paths to God and are therefore good or Slight change. At the very least, the idea that each person can have their own religious convictions as long as they keep them private and don't try to convert others. Either shade of that religious relativism is the cultural air we breathe, the ocean we swim in from weeknight sitcoms to royal coronations. It also seems to be thriving inside the church, not just outside. According to one Barna study from 2021, 64 percent of self-identified Christians believe that all religious faiths are of equal value. And 66 percent believe that having faith, subjective faith matters more than the specific faith one pursues. Percentages among self-identified evangelicals, more specifically, are only marginally smaller. So you, you might be here this morning and you wrestle with the idea that there is one true God. Or you might be here this morning and you already know you disagree with it. People attend church for all kinds of reasons. In any case, if that's you, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. And I hope that you will at least consider with me what the Bible says about God with an open mind. And if that's you here this morning, I would love the opportunity to meet you afterwards and to continue the conversation. Why make such a big deal about this? You might be sitting there thinking, what's the big deal? Why can't we just be happy with the fact that most people in the world are religious in some kind of way? Well, that's a fair question. But it's a big deal because it comes with eternal consequences. To believe that all religious faiths are of equal value or that one's personal subjective faith is more important than the object of that faith, is to lead oneself and others away from the only hope of salvation, the only hope of healing in its ultimate sense, which is what we all long for, right? That's what everybody longs for. But That's how the logic of verse 22 works so look there the Lord says turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other in other words the reality of the one true God grounds the reality and the only hope of salvation Salvation is found in no one else, says the Apostle Peter, preaching in Jerusalem in the early days after Jesus ascended back to heaven. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Yes, this is exclusive in one sense, but it need not be exclusive offensive or threatening to the contrary isaiah 45 shows us that it is actually good news it is gospel for all peoples and in this sense it's actually radically inclusive it's gospel The one true creator God to whom the whole world is accountable has spoken and he has revealed himself not only as creator but also as savior and he has provided the solution to the mess of human sin and misery, the despair of unending disappointments and broken dreams and the nagging weight of shame and guilt that we all have experienced and perhaps are experiencing in this moment. And he's offering this solution to you this morning, free for the taking. He's offering himself. "Turn to me," says the Lord. and be saved." And the aim of the rest of this sermon is to so display the full reality and glory of God as he is described in these verses to so muse in our minds and in our hearts upon the subject of God that we are compelled to do it, to turn away from ourselves, to turn away from our dead-end pursuits for joy, for satisfaction, for peace, for love and, and to turn to him. So specifically, our focus will be on three facets of God's identity, who he is, that are emphasized for us in this passage. Three facets of God's identity. Number one, he is the Lord, all all caps, the Lord, the covenant God of Israel. Number two, he is God, the creator Israel of the world. And number three, he's the savior of people from all the ends of the earth. That's where we're going. First, he's the Lord, the covenant God of Israel. Just look at the beginning of our passage in verse 18. For thus says the Lord. We're introduced to him this way right from the beginning. Thus says the Lord. That title, that name, occurs throughout the passage a total of six times. Verses 18, verses 19, verse 21, 24, and 25. And in each case, it's in all caps, L-O-R-D. Now, what does this mean? What does this signify? Well, first, it refers to the personal name of God as he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And it's built on the Hebrew verb, that underlies the expression that he gives to Moses. I am who I am. Or I am, for short. Most foundationally then, the Lord, in all caps, signifies his absolute being. He is. No beginning. No end utterly independent and self-sufficient absolute reality in a class all by himself, the great I am. But second, flowing from that very episode and flowing from the continuing narrative in the book of Exodus, the Lord, in all caps, also signifies that he is the personal covenant God of Israel. After delivering the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he describes himself like this in Exodus chapter 34 The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. What a description. A God full of mercy and justice, compassionate and forgiving, yet not sweeping under the rug sin and injustice as if it didn't matter. Thus says the Lord. That is who is addressing you this morning from this word. Not a mere force, not simply the idea of transcendence, not a vague higher power, not the spark of the divine within us, but the personal, all-sufficient Lord, the covenant God of Israel, full of justice to right every wrong and full of mercy to forgive every repentant sinner. Behold our God, the Lord. And second, not only is he the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, he's also God, the creator of the world. Notice verse 18 again. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. You can see here, Isaiah goes out of his way to emphasize, before the Lord actually starts speaking, the fact that Israel's God, the Lord, is also the creator of the world. Did you notice the pileup of creation language there? Created the heavens, formed the earth, made it, and established it. You can't miss it. The point is that Israel's Lord is also the world's creator, He's no mere tribal deity or provincial deity that can simply be dismissed or ignored if you're not part of the people of Israel. He is God overall. There is no other. And what that means is that we are all accountable to him as his creatures, no exceptions, Nowhere on the planet. He's God overall. You see, he also reveals here his purpose in creation. At least one of them. Did you catch it in verse 18? He says he did not create it empty, but he formed it to be inhabited. Formed it to be inhabited. Made it possible for people to live in it. Why did he do that? Why did he create the earth this way? Especially to put human beings, the climax of his creation, those whom he made in his image, why did he do that? Well, there are many good and right answers to that question all throughout the Bible. But I think the emphasis here in this text is this, that we might know him and worship him and enjoy him. Look at verse 19. Right after emphasizing the fact that he created with a purpose, he says, I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. In other words, God spoke plainly to the people he made that they might not seek him in vain. Or to put it positively, that they might find him that they might know him. In verse 18, we're told God did not create the world empty. Uh, The Hebrew word here being tohu. And in verse 19, we're told that he did not say to its inhabitants, seek me in vain, same Hebrew word, tohu. In other words, neither creation nor his purpose in creation was tohu. Empty or in vain. They go together. The Creator God has revealed Himself by His Word openly and clearly. He speaks the truth and declares what is right. He created in order to be known by His creatures. And not only known, but to be worshiped. I think worship is implied in the language of seeking Him, but you can see it more explicitly in verse 23. Where he says, to me, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. So, knees bowing, tongues confessing. This is the language of acknowledgement. It's the language, in one sense, of worship. And this, at root, at bottom, underneath all of the good, God-ordained tasks that he has for us within creation, this at root is what we were made for to know him to worship him brothers and sisters that's that's the purpose of your life of my life to know someone not first to be someone Oh, how many heartaches and pitfalls would be avoided if this could land on us this morning. The ultimate purpose of your life is to know somebody, namely God, not first, to be somebody. It's the great business of life, to know him, to glorify him, to enjoy him forever. Now, many people hear that and they stumble. They stumble over such an idea. They think it makes God egotistical or needy. If God created us to know him and worship him, so the argument goes, then it must be because he needs our worship and praise to be complete. And the needing of praise from creatures to stoke a fragile ego is the sign of an egomaniac, or as c.s. lewis once said before he became a christian like a vain woman who wants compliments such a god would indeed not be worthy of worship and there are many good responses that could be given to that objection but if if that's you this morning if you've thought that if wrestled with that i would just ask you to consider another possibility what if Being created by God to know and worship Him, far from revealing a pitiable offer from a needy egomaniac, what if it was actually a loving gift from the one person in all the universe in whom you could find the highest and the deepest and the longest joy? That is, in fact, what the Bible says. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that's precisely what Lewis eventually came to see himself, that God, in pursuing, even commanding our worship, is at the same time pursuing the fullness of our joy. He is not egotistical or needy in creating us to know and worship him. He is love. He is love. But this immediately raises a problem. For we all know deep down that we don't seek God the way we should. Many in this world outright reject him and are not saved at all. Others are saved and yet still fail in loving him as we ought The story of humanity is the story of idolatry, of exchanging the glory of God for other things, especially the person in the mirror. Our hearts are idle factories, constantly churning out idol after idol in the hope that the latest one will finally give us what we're longing for, only to be let down again and again. We forsake the fountain of living water, God himself, for empty cisterns that can hold no water. And in so doing, we dishonor him. And that's the essence of sin sin is fundamentally against God, it's the heart posture underneath all manner of more specific, concrete sins. Look at verse 20 with me. Assemble yourselves and come. This is still the Lord speaking. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Sure, the forms may have changed. Most of us no longer are carrying around wooden idols, though with these things with us 24-7... Maybe the idea is not so far off. Either way, the result is the same. We're looking to a God that cannot save, a God that cannot deliver on its promises. As one author put it, the problem with our idols is not that they break down now and then like home appliances. The problem is that they're useless. They're utterly useless. They cannot save. They cannot deliver what they hold out And they only leave us more disappointed, more devastated, and more dehumanized for we ultimately become like what we worship. And the main problem then is that we find ourselves under the righteous judgment of God. Let's look at verses 23 and 24. By myself I have sworn... From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. This takes us to the final day when every knee will bow. That's the vision of Isaiah here. Far beyond the historical circumstances Coming with Cyrus and Babylon and empires. He's he's taken us in his vision to the final day when every knee will bow. This will happen, he says, whether willingly, with joy, or under compulsion, with spite. Everyone will acknowledge the true God in one way or another. And so, if there remains in your life a settled opposition to God, a deliberate thanks but no thanks to your Creator, the result will be to appear before him on the final day, and despite your resistance, you will bow the knee, you will publicly acknowledge him, and you will be ashamed. Ashamed. Sounds like a Bible word, but what does that mean? Like what? What is the? Re, what's the reality of that? Well, in light of the rest of Scripture, and just to be brief, it means ultimately facing the righteous wrath of God. It's His judgment on our sinful rejection of Him, what Jesus refers to as hell. Paul describes it in 2 Thessalonians like this, suffering the punishment of eternal destruction or ruin away from the presence of the Lord. It's a horrific reality. We don't like to talk about it very much. It's horrific. And we need to feel it as such. If we don't, we will not open our mouths to share the gospel. And by our silence, we will truncate and trivialize that gospel. For it's precisely here where the good news is most profound and full of hope. Because the creator God, the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, is also the Savior. He's a righteous God and a Savior, says verse 21. We're not left to ourselves. There's a rescue. And this was God's plan all along. To save a people for himself from all the ends of the earth. A fullness of Israel, yes, and a fullness of all the nations. In fact, by the time we reach verse 25, Israel, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified, now includes all those from the nations who have turned to God in repentance and faith, making up the one full people of God. That's what Isaiah has described throughout this passage the survivors of the nations coming in and saying yes to the true God. Jesus, we're told, is the ultimate offspring of Abraham. He's the faithful human Messiah who succeeded in perfect obedience where Adam failed, but he is also the fully divine, eternal son of God. And that's why Jesus himself can be identified as the Lord here of verse 23, to whom every knee will bow. Paul does this explicitly in Philippians chapter 2 in what one commentator called the most stunning identification of Jesus with the Lord, the God of Israel, and the creator of the world. After describing his humbling of himself and becoming a man and becoming obedient to the point of death. Paul exalts and he says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus is the Lord. And he endured The shame of the cross so we wouldn't have to endure the never-ending shame of our sin. Here's how Isaiah himself, about 700 years beforehand, describes what Jesus endured for us. He was despised, shamed, and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief Every one of us, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Out of the anguish of His soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By His knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall be justified, and He shall bear their iniquities. That's <sighs> amazing grace. The preeminent Lord, the God of all creation, is also willingly the suffering Savior, King, who was shamed that you might be exalted, who was cursed that you might be blessed, who was put to death that you might have life, who was forsaken that you might be reconciled. Behold our God. None above him, none before him, I will trust in his name. Will you? Will you? Blaise Pascal, the renowned 17th century French philosopher, mathematician, and physicist, once said, if God exists, not seeking God must be the gravest error imaginable. Indeed. Run from him now, wrote J.I. Packer in his best-selling book, Knowing God, and you will meet him as judge then and without hope. Seek him now, rather, and you will find him, and you will then discover that you are looking forward to that future meeting with joy, knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the Lord's offer to you. Turn to me and be saved, for I am God, and there is no other. Let's pray. That is our heart's desire, Lord, that more and more here around the world would turn to you and know the joy of salvation, realize for the first time what they were made for and the depths and the heights of contentment and satisfaction that come into their hearts as a result. And I pray for those of us here, Lord, who know you. Oh, God, increase our knowledge of you. Refresh us yet again this morning because we've seen you for who you really are. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.